Coming to you from Brick House in downtown Brooklyn, this is 112BK. On the show today, a Brooklyn church's new abolition effort. This time, it's taking aim at sex trafficking. The importance of diversity in covering criminal justice. And nurturing artists in East New York. Hi, I'm Ashley Ford. Thanks for joining us. Can I tell you what really bothers me about the DACA situation? Of course I can, you're already here. How many folks seem to think that deporting young people who've done nothing but live their lives in this country will in some way improve their own lives? This bothers me because I've done enough reading of history to know that this is how despots thrive. By picking a scapegoat for our ills and pretending that the eradication of that scapegoat will ensure a prosperous future for all of those who really deserve one. Americans will always have complicated issues to face. That is the reality of living in a complex society. We could either face those issues with a nuanced reflection on our own history of bad behaviors, or we can find scapegoats. Today, the scapegoat is immigrants. Tomorrow, who knows? People who look like me, people who look like you. Anyway. On the show today, a new abolitionist movement takes aim at sex traffic, diversifying the coverage of criminal justice and planting the seeds of art in East New York. But first, these things. The stable genius is at it again, this time putting a 30% tariff on solar panels and cells. Industry observers say this will put a dent in the fastest growing job provider and fastest growing green energy technology in the country. So why is he doing this? Does he hate job creation? I don't think so. Does he hate green energy? Maybe. But apparently he's doing this at the behest of two large domestic solar companies who say they're hurt by the cheaper imports. Other companies and consumers, however, benefit from them. Two Brooklyn companies in the solar industry who get 80% of their supplies from abroad say that while this is a kick in the gut, they had, been they had been expecting such a move. So they priced it into their 2018 projections. Sure, in the short term, fewer people will go in for solar and fewer funders will invest. But eventually, they expect sanity to prevail. Here's to hope. Let's hope sanity prevails. Speaking of the future, El Chapo, the so-called drug kingpin who was extradited from Mexico to a Brooklyn jail last year, says he won't kill any jurors who sit on his trial. Therefore, there's no need to keep them anonymous and give them armed protection, as prosecutors have requested. The request, they say, comes out of the defendant's long history of violence and an alleged propensity to whack witnesses. Lawyers for the accused say these special arrangements would send a message of guilt, that their client is dangerous, and therefore bias any jury. They have a point, but then the prosecution might have to narrow its jury pool to only those who've never seen The Godfather. So, good luck with that. Speaking of staying alive, how do you swim with the sharks without getting eaten? Ask Bedstuy's Kyle Donovan, who just won $100,000 on ABC's Shark Tank for his invention that could solve a problem most people have likely encountered. Ever find yourself at a party with a buffet? You want a plate of food, you want a drink, which do you get first? 
because you can't hold both at the same time and eat unless you opt to mash your face into your plate to eat your salad. But Donovan has a solution called iPlate and iCup, a set of interlocking dinnerware with a cup that slides into a slot on the bottom of the plate. The utensils also adhere to the plate. Now, if it could also work as headgear, you could free up both hands to do whatever, but I don't, I don't know how that would work. We'll be back in a moment with our next guest. In the 19th century, Plymouth Church in Brooklyn Heights was famously outspoken against the existence and expansion of slavery in America. Now they're embarking on a new abolitionist movement, this time against sex trafficking, which persists to an alarming degree throughout the country. The church will be hosting an event on Sunday, January 28th to address this issue as Human Trafficking Awareness Month winds down. Here to tell us about it is Beth Fleischer, chair of the church's new abolitionist. Thanks for joining us today, Beth. Thank you for having me. Can you tell me, starting off, just a little bit about the history of Plymouth Church and being an abolitionist? Okay. It's a very interesting church in that it was formed, the congregation was formed mm -hmm. to fight slavery. Right. Their first minister was Henry Ward Beecher. Mm -hmm. He was a famous abolitionist and also the brother of Harriet Beecher Stowe, who mm -hmm. is, of course, known for writing Uncle Tom's Cabin. He waged an amazing fight, PR fight, mm -hmm. against slavery and the Civil War and carried on and on and on about what was going on in the South right. throughout his ministry. And he was always at the forefront of social justice issues. Mm -hmm. but. Our history doesn't stop there. In little bits and pieces, I can tell you things like Branch Rickey mm -hmm. of the Brooklyn Dodgers met with our minister at the time in order to discuss hiring Jackie Robinson, and we all know how that turned out. Wow. Jackie was hired, so that's mm -hmm. pretty cool. Martin Luther King Jr. was a friend of one of our pastors, and so he came to Plymouth and preached from its pulpit a very early version of his I Have I have a dream speech. We just had one of your parishioners on a couple weeks ago to talk about when Martin Luther King Jr. came to yes. Plymouth Church and yes. she actually met him. Yes, indeed. That was Grace Faison. Mm -hmm. But we feel that having history is wonderful, but we really do need to act out our faith in our community today. We can't just rest on our laurels. As you talk about moving forward and looking at new things and being active in your faith and obviously in your um, activism, sex trafficking. Is sex what's trafficking. Coming up. Sex trafficking is what's come up. Can I ask you really quickly, because I think people in general have an idea of what sex trafficking is. Um, more and more people are starting to understand that it happens right here in America, which is good, that people are becoming right. aware of that. But one of the things that I think people still wonder is who are the quote unquote buyers? We don't really know, because right. it's still the case that many buyers, Johns, mm -hmm. um, even if they're picked up, they don't really get prosecuted. Mm -hmm. A very, very small number of these people who buy sex, buy sex illegally here mm -hmm. in New York City, are ever prosecuted. Right. There is a program that the Brooklyn DA has called Respect, mm -hmm. where those who are picked up and are prosecuted, if they are first offenders, are put through this program, Respect, mm -hmm. in order to come to an understanding that buying sex is both illegal and, let's just say, immoral. Mm -hmm. Do these men understand 
that they could be involved with someone who has been sexually I can't speak to that. Yeah. I've actually never spoken to a John. Right. So I, I'm really sorry, but I would. No, right. I would like to think, mm -hmm. not. But considering the conditions that most of the these trafficking victims are held in, right, where they're performing 50 sex acts a day, mm -hmm. where they're in terrible conditions, where they look physically unwell, where mm -hmm. they may have been hit recently. Right. I, I can't believe that anybody could look at these people and think that they're not in some sort of dire situation. Who are these women? Who are these girls? Who are these people who end up in the sex trafficking industry? It's not who you would think. Right. So first of all, I would like to say that, that this goes across gender. Mm -hmm. So while the, the largest proportion are female, right. there is a proportion of males. Absolutely. Um, and they're in just as dire straits. Mm -hmm. This cuts across all boundaries. It's all ethnicities, all socioeconomic brackets, mm -hmm. all ages. But particularly and most disturbing, the average age that someone enters enters the sex trade is 13, 14, or 15. And you may ask why. And that's because children at that age are very malleable because they're still children. Mm -hmm. And what happens is pimps befriend them, and I would say that in air quotes, mm -hmm. and then bring them into the trade, disassociate them from their families, mm -hmm. disassociate them from their friends and communities, mm -hmm. and that's the end of that. Right. And do you, I mean, I'm wondering, do you make the distinction, because I, I read about it so much, between um, someone who has been sex trafficked and someone who has entered into sex work? Or no. do we think that, okay. Um, trafficking, the, the official definition of trafficking through the UN and through other, other uh, governmental agencies, international and, and national and, and state, is are you held in that job for which you're not getting paid mm. by force, fraud, or coercion. Mm. So those are the key words, force, fraud, fraud, or coercion. All right. So if you're not being paid, mm -hmm. and if you're being held against your will or made to perform work, labor, mm -hmm. against your will, that's trafficking. Right. I'd sometimes I, I feel know. so devastated at the idea, especially of young people um, and of children. I learned about this a few this years industry. ago. Yeah. Um, one of the, I mean, one of the ways that I first heard about this a few years ago is that in my um, hometown, my old home, Indianapolis, Indiana, right. when the Super Bowl came, uh, very soon after, there were different reporters um, and different pieces that yes. went up about how when the Super Bowl comes to town, um, that's one of the busiest time for sex And they literally, these pimps, and I'm going to keep mm -hmm. on using that word because it's a negative word. Right. I want there to be a negative connotation here. Absolutely. These are not good people. Right. These pimps are transporting trafficked peoples, trafficked victims mm -hmm. from state to state to state. And if they're underage, that's even another law that's broken in right. order to service people at the Super Bowl. Wow. Yuck. Yeah. I mean, yuck. Yeah. That's terrifying. Yeah. That's terrifying. I've heard reports of, of girls, you know, 10, 15 girls shoved into a van and driven for hours and hours and hours, winding up someplace where they don't know where they are, and then being forced to do sex work. Mm -hmm. How'd you get involved in this work? So I'm not a counselor. This mm -hmm. isn't my background, my, my professional background at all. Mm -hmm. um, 
as a member of Plymouth Church, we are actively encouraged to, as we say, act out our faith in the world. Mm -hmm. We don't just stay and inside our own little community, inside our own little bubble. We want to reach out and help people. Right. It was brought to our attention about five years ago or so that we had this really great abolitionist past, but mm -hmm. as we said at the beginning of this, there's a lot of work to be done in the present. Right. So I thought about it a while, and I was looking for a way to make a difference in my community. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, I'm going to learn about this, and I'm going to see if there's anything that we can do here in Plymouth that makes sense. Right. And so I spent about 10 months doing a lot of investigation on my own, just on the Internet, and then mm -hmm. going to meetings of various organizations right. and figured out that there was something we could do. Wow. Can you tell me really quickly about the event and okay, when the, it is and for people who you want betcha. to show up? So this is Plymouth Church in Brooklyn, in Brooklyn Heights. The address is 75 Hicks Street, mm -hmm. PlymouthChurch.org. Because right. it's all there from our homepage. You can find all the information about the event. Excellent. There is a film called In Our Backyard. Mm -hmm. The director is a young woman, Danielle Rose, who was raised here in Brooklyn. She, amazingly, got three women that had been trafficked in Brooklyn, one as a child out of her high school, wow. to speak about their different, unique, trafficking experiences. And then she went to professionals that helped them in organizations that help people in New York City and in mm -hmm. Brooklyn and got them to intersperse what they did to get these women and what they do to work with other survivors wow. out of their situation. We've had a fantastic response to this. We are getting, we're getting Vanessa McAvoy from the Brooklyn DA's office from mm -hmm. their human trafficking unit to come talk to us. We're getting Lieutenant Christopher Sharp from the NYPD's human trafficking team to tell us what to look for in our community, mm -hmm. what numbers to call, what to do to end trafficking. We're seeing this incredible movie, and then at the end of the movie, we're having a Q&A where we're actually going to be able to talk to two women whose lives are portrayed in the film, right. and the DA's office, and the NYPD, and people from this organization, and just really interact and ask questions. So there's going to be a lot of information. A lot and going a on. lot of opportunity for people who are interested and who want to help to figure out how to do that. And the point is, you can help, mm -hmm. and it's an education event. You can't do something if you don't know. Right. And when you leave, you'll know what to do. Fantastic. Thank you so much for being with and us. And thank you so much for our time. Appreciate it. Your time. Thank you. When it comes to the criminal justice system, a system that documentaries, reports, and analysis have shown was built by and for the interests of white men, one way to start changing that narrative is to open up the media to opinions held by people who aren't white males. How do you lower the barriers of entry for other voices? Here to talk about that is Donovan X. Ramsey, the first commentary editor for The Marshall Project, which covers the criminal justice system in depth. Thanks for joining us on the show today. Thank you for having me. Can you just start by telling me about what the Marshall Project does in your words and also your involvement with it? Yeah, so um, very simply, the Marshall Project is a non-biased, non-profit um, news organization mm -hmm. that covers the criminal justice system. Um, and our real goal is just to illuminate and sort of shine a light on what's happening in the system mm -hmm. and on individuals who are impacted by the system. Yeah, we're uh, the only outlet sort of dedicated to that work. Um, mm -hmm. Me, I'm the commentary editor at the Marshall Project, and my mm -hmm. job is to 
field opinions, essays, perspectives from all over the criminal justice system, from all over the country, mm -hmm. and to be able to sort of present those on the site in a way that sort of drives home uh, a lot of the work that we do on the new side. And you also write. Yeah, I do. You yeah, write. Yeah. Don't, just say, don't just say edit. You write as well. Yeah, I write as well. How does that work for you, the changing of voices, especially with, you know, this issue that is so high tension. Yeah. Emotions are high around issues of criminal justice and injustice as they should be. So yeah. as a writer and an editor, like how are you bridging those two worlds? Yeah, it's very interesting in that. So um, I actually started my career as a writer, um, and as, as most editors do, right. and then sort of moved to editing over the past few years. And um, I've only written a few times at the Marshall Project, and mostly because I want to encourage other people to contribute to the site, that I right. sort of really want to be able to bring in voices and you know make people uh, comfortable um, and sort of not think that the organization has any sort of institutional voice or um, opinion or that um, in some way I own one area of coverage right uh, so I try to balance it by writing about things that I feel especially um, passionate about right. um, and things that I can get other people to write. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that also that the Marshall Project does that I've noticed is that there's a diversity of writers. There are mm. all kinds of writers offering their opinions on criminal justice yeah. and on some of the more pressing issues of our day. We're seeing, I think, some shift there, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas these cultural commentaries used to mostly come, and they probably still mostly come mm -hmm. from white men, we are seeing a shift that more different kinds of voices are being included. Yeah. But what about on the editing side? Are we seeing a shift there as well? Um, I would like to think so, that there are yeah. a few sort of big outlets, the New York Times, The Atlantic, The Washington Post, that are sort of bringing on um, editors from diverse backgrounds to sort mm -hmm. of bring in different voices and new voices to sort of edit those pieces and mm -hmm. to uh, assign those pieces to um, uh, writers of color, to women writers, to LGBTQ writers. Um, and I think that's ultimately good for the industry yeah. that, you know, when we think about um, sort of what media is, oftentimes it's the byline, it's the name mm -hmm. out front. But, you know, as sort of you and I know, behind those sort of very upfront things, there's oh, an yeah. entire ecosystem of people mm -hmm. who are creating media and sort of what we think about the world. And um, it's something that we pay a lot of attention to at the Marshall Project and something that I try to do as an editor of color is make sure that I'm thinking about diversity first. Mm -hmm. um, or ne necessarily first, but I'm thinking about diversity. Um, and are you sort of, go sorry, ahead. go ahead. No, you're good. Yeah, that I try to think about diversity in every decision that I make, especially mm -hmm. because we cover um, an, an, an issue that is so deeply impacted by questions of race and racial justice. Right. Yeah. Are you trying to change the way people see the world? Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> is that the dream? That's the I goal? Mean, uh, yeah, many journalists are sort of afraid to say that, but mm -hmm. I think that sort of embedded in the mission of a journalist, which is to um, present information and to contextualize it, mm -hmm. right, that there is a sort of question to what end. Right. Um, and that um, what we consider to be important about the world informs the um, stories that we follow and the questions that we ask and the way that we present a story. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm not afraid to say, you know, I, I very much want 
um, the decisions that are made in our society to be informed by as much information as possible and as many views as possible. Right. Um, so to me, I feel like that's that's the whole thing. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. I mean, I would agree. <laughs> Can you tell me what are some of the pieces that you've assigned over your tenure as the commentary editor that have just made you really proud and felt like you've really put some of like your best work into them as an editor? Yeah. Um, so one, one piece that really stands out is a piece that I published right after the um, killing of Jordan Edwards, who mm -hmm. was a you know, 15 year old young man in Texas who was um, killed by a police officer. Um, that officer is right now sort of um, having his case adjudicated. Right. Um, and of course it came at the end of a long list of police killings of unarmed uh, black men and women, boys oh, yeah. and girls. Mm -hmm. um, and at the time I was, this you know, comes after many years of covering criminal justice mm -hmm. and really at a loss for words, right, about what to assign, what to say if I was gonna write something myself. Right. Um, uh, because the hard thing about being a person that edits commentary around criminal justice is you have to uh, make exciting and new and interesting to an audience oh, something yeah. that they're very, in many cases, numb to. Right. Um, and I was talking this over with a friend of mine from undergrad, um, a Morehouse brother of mine. I have to shout out Morehouse. Mm -hmm. Y'all always do. <laughs> we, we always do. We always find a way. You do. <laughs> and, um, and, and he's an educator here in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. And we were talking about um, the case. And one of the things that he mentioned to me is just how difficult it is as a middle school teacher to go to school and to uh, try to make kids care about um, sort of whatever the curriculum is when they live in a world that is so threatening. Right. So all the kids want to do when they come to class is talk about what they're seeing in the news uh, because they're so impacted many times, traumatized or re-traumatized re by it. Right. Um, so I just asked him to just sort of put down his thoughts on paper and he uh, came back to me what I thought with, with what was a really beautiful essay about the experience of being an educator um, uh, in these times that we live in. Mm -hmm. And um, you know, it was sort of a very quiet piece, but one of the things that I really appreciated about it was um, you know, teachers are some of the most common folks you know, in our society, and they um, go to and work in many of the places that police officers do, mm -hmm. and they have different experiences, um, are uh, perceive um, young people differently, uh, it seems, than many police officers do. Mm -hmm. And he was able, I think, to sort of articulate um, um, what that perspective is and there, add it to the conversation. Was there just like a nugget of wisdom somewhere in there? Was there a line? I feel like there's always a line. There's always uh, a, an image or a line Now you're putting me on something. the spot about it's how okay. I remember this. <laughs> no, it's okay. I mean, but I just feel like in a lot of pieces like that, there's always a moment where I yeah. think to myself, that's the moment, like that's the shift, yeah. like that's the thing that really, you know, gets to the heart sure. of what's happening. Well, you know, I, mean, I, I sort of can't think of specific language, but what mm -hmm. I do remember him writing in the piece is he sort of pointed out the fact that Jordan Edwards was, uh, according to reports, a straight-A student. Right. And that one of the things that he's charged to do as a black man in his school, one of very few um, black male educators in the school, is mm -hmm. to um, um, encourage kids, right, to sort of be those exceptional students. Right. And he uh, was asked by a student why should he care, right, about his schoolwork. Mm -hmm. um, if, if a young man like Jordan could be a straight-A student, a star athlete, mm -hmm. and still be gunned down at 15 years old, and he, he was at a loss for words. Yeah. Um, and he, um, in a way that I think was very sort of vulnerable and real, mm -hmm. talked about being at a loss for words as an educator. Yeah. 
Well, Donovan, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it. I would love to have you back sometime to continue oh, this sure. very important conversation about your work at the Marshall Project. Thank you for having me. Thank you. One of our next guests said of East New York that it's a forgotten land peppered with media horror stories, be they about crime, gentrification, dysfunction, etc. But she's helping to change that narrative. Her name is Catherine Green, and she's the founder of Arts East New York. Thanks for coming on the show, Catherine. Thank you for having us. And she's joined by Alexis Mena, public programs manager for the organization, which seeks to preserve and highlight the culture of the community. Welcome to 112BK, both of you. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you. Catherine, it's been nine years since you started the organization in East New York. Can you tell me what it feels like to be in this new space? Uh, boy, it feels incredible to be in a new space, uh, but like we've been doing this work inside and outside of walls for the past uh, nine years, and coming up on a decade of work in the community is a tremendous opportunity uh, to continue to serve more people in, the in this neighborhood and uh, do tons more work that needs to be done. Absolutely. Can you talk to me a little bit about, because people always bring up gentrification when you start talking, especially about Brooklyn. Um, how is that affecting the work that you do there right now? Wow. Uh, so our work centers around using the arts as a tool for social and economic change. You know, we have different focuses where we focus on economic development and, uh, you know, health and sustainability. And so in the past four or five years, gentrification and displacement has become one of our focuses as well. Right. Um, so with that, we do exhibitions around, you know, uh, um, identifying resources for community members to know mm -hmm. that what skills and what tools are available to them in order to remain in the neighborhood and fight the forces of market pressures um, in East New York. Um, we also are part of a coalition, uh, the Community Coalition for East New York, uh, which we are now about to produce a film series um, to educate people around gentrification and the, you know what it really is. You know, corporate corporate entities that are chunking off you know portions of communities all over the country right. um, and creating a systematic way in what and to remove people from neighborhood and right. so and you with arts east new york alexis you're working in public programming so you're directly to the people you're <laughs> out here yeah <laughs> tell me a little bit about that and about that work that you do well um my uh career in public um, programming has really arisen from my previous career in real estate and finance mm -hmm. and uh, recovering from the ills of um, uh, capitalism i re was reacquainted with my creative ability and um, I decided to take the knowledge of uh, financial literacy uh, and skill sets that I acquired in, in finance and bring them into the art field. Um, and when I met Catherine, uh, Catherine, when I first met her, I, I was a teaching artist. Mm -hmm. So I went from teaching artist to project manager and now um, public arts manager. And that transition has really helped inspired me to, to show that I can influence my community, that I am influencing my community, and that public programming is the way I, do, I go about doing that. <laughs> like, I mean, I mean, not just the answer, I mean, like, just the work mm. is fantastic. Catherine, can you tell me 
really quickly, um, what's next? Mm. Gosh, there's so much that's going on. Uh, we are launching, relaunching our Renew Lots initiative, uh, which is where we take vacant land in the community. We use shipping containers, retrofit them, and use them for local entrepreneurs in the community as well as local artists um, to, you know, boost economic development in the neighborhood. Uh, we also have a jazz brunch series, which is going on, which is so fun and amazing. But we pair a jazz artist with a local chef, uh, and that fundraising effort helps us to fund our youth program, our music and arts program that we run, um, which goes on Saturdays and then during the summer. Mm -hmm. uh, and last but not least, we also are doing a film series, a film festival with in, in, sorry, in partnership with our coalition, which will highlight gentrification and displacement uh, mm -hmm. throughout the country. And so That's fantastic. onwards and upwards. <laughs> onwards and upwards. <laughs> Alexis, really quickly, people who are interested, people who are artists, people who just want to support, where do they go to find out more? Oh, well, the first place is um, we have a brick-and-mortar location in East New York at 534 Livonia Avenue, mm -hmm. but we have an online presence at artsystny.org, um, and there you'll be able to provide, uh, see more about our own programming, programming that's happening in the community. We have a great newsletter where we try to collect as many resources and, and what's available in the community and try mm -hmm. to share that with people in our mailing list. Um, but I, I would say, you know, if you can't, if you're not an online person, come come down to come our through. offices. Come and we are, our space is amazing, and you'll fall in love with the artwork and the people that we have there. Fantastic! <laughs> Thank you both for being Thank here you. for let for the work you do first of all, and also just for coming on and letting people know that this resource is available to them. It's really important, and I appreciate having you. Thank Thanks. you so much. Appreciate <laughs> you too. Thanks for having us. And that's all for today's show. Next week, we'll be back with Eric Gonzalez, the Brooklyn DA, a Brooklyn Young Republican, and a discussion on the anniversary of airport madness after travel ban 1.0. Hope to see you then. 112BK is hosted by me, Ashley C. Ford, and is written and produced by Ross Tuttle. It's also produced by Fred Brown, Shereen Bargi, Emily Bogosian, Naeem Van, Kritzi Roberts, Charmaine Lamb, and is edited by Clinton Filson Jr. and Kyrell Palmer. Our show is recorded by Eric Hagasak, Antonio Rosario, and our theme music was composed and produced by Brad Parker. Our executive producers are Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias.